You're listening to Comedy Central. August 14, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. guests joining us tonight. First, New York City Mayor and Democratic presidential candidate Bill de Blasio is joining us, everybody! On the show. And then here to talk about her new movie, Angel Has Fallen, Jada Pinkett Smith is here, everybody! So much fun. Also on tonight's show, the country's worst congressman gets worse uh, all your favorite TV shows are now in one place, and why Melania might be in trouble. So let's catch up on today's headlines. Let's begin with Steve King, Iowa congressman and coconut that wished to be a human. <laughs> congressman King has made a ton of batshit comments over the years, but today he somehow managed to set a new high score of crazy. Some new controversial comments from a Republican member of the House of Representatives, Congressman Steve King of Iowa, once again, seeming to suggest to a group of conservatives earlier today that the human population might not exist had it not been for rape and incest throughout history. What if it was okay, and what if we went back through all the family trees and just pulled those people out that were products of rape and incest? Would there be any population of the world left if we did that? What? No population without rape and incest? Sounds like someone finally got around to watching Game of Thrones. That's, uh... <laughs> like, either Steve King has lost his damn mind, or he just did a 23andMe test and got back some pretty crazy results. <laughs> like, here's a general rule for any politicians out there. Before you say something, stop and ask yourself a simple question. After I say this, will I be known as the rape and incest guy? <laughs> if there's any way the answer could be yes, just stay quiet. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Have you ever gotten a birthday gift that wasn't quite what you expected, but you pretended that you liked it anyway? Well, there's one kid in India who's not good at pretending. A birthday celebration in India gone terribly wrong. Yeah, a rich couple gave their 22-year-old son, Akash, a brand new BMW as a gift. But instead of being grateful, Akash got angry. It wasn't the car he wanted, so the young driver pushed that brand new BMW into the river. Video trending tonight online shows the car floating away and sinking. He claimed the Beamer was, quote, too small for him and his pals, and that he told his parents he wanted a Jaguar. Wow. He pushed his brand new BMW into the river. You know what his parents should have done? They should have been like, okay, uh, we got you a Jaguar and then put him in a cage with an actual Jaguar. That's what they should have done. <laughs> I cannot believe he pushed a brand new car right into the river. Honestly, I'm glad that his parents didn't give him a puppy for his birthday. That shit wouldn't have ended well. And also, how was he able to push the car all the way to the river without his parents stopping him? What, were they just watching him going, should we stop him? Be like, no, 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 I want to see where he's going with this. I want to see. <laughs> Let's see how far it goes. And let me just say that times have really changed, 
right? Because it used to be American parents scolding their kids like, don't throw away food, Billy. There are starving kids in India. And now it's Indian parents like, don't throw away your BMW. There are kids in America driving Kia Sorentos. <laughs> don't waste, you don't waste. Okay, and finally, as streaming television continues to take over entertainment, all the big media companies are merging together. Disney and Fox, AT&T and Time Warner, and now two more companies have decided to tie the knot. It's a media reunion for CBS and Viacom, the two companies announcing Tuesday. They're merging to become Viacom CBS. The long-awaited deal between the two puts some of the biggest brands, including Showtime, MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, and Comedy Central, all back under one corporate banner. The merger creates a company with more than $28 billion in revenue. That's right. The two media giants, CBS and Viacom, are becoming one, which is so exciting. Because with so many shows under the same corporate umbrella, there's infinite spin-off potential. Yeah, like Young Sheldon and Drunk History can just merge to become Drunk Sheldon. <laughs> yeah. Or we could finally get a season of Survivor set in Jersey Shore, yeah. <laughs> Now you get voted out of the jacuzzi. Or Nickelodeon, one of my favorites, could finally combine SpongeBob with the show Seal Team. Yeah, so then we can have Seal Team SquarePants. That would be dope. Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? Osama Bin Laden, it's when he landed in the ocean, that's where he lives now. Get your gun, SpongeBob! All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our main story. Melania Trump. First lady of the United States and woman who just saw her enemy from across the room. <laughs> While her husband has struggled to get his approval rating over 40%, Melania has consistently remained the country's most popular Trump. And personally, I love her too. Because we have so much in common. We're both immigrants. Neither of us would be here if it weren't for Donald Trump. And I'm just gonna put it out there, we're both style icons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, Melania, this bitch stole your look. <laughs> now, now, the reason I've been thinking about Melania lately is because in the wake of Trump's recent immigration crackdown, I've started to notice something that's got me really concerned. I think Donald Trump is trying to deport Melania. <laughs> no, and you might be asking, why would he want to deport his wife? I don't know. I don't know, but things haven't exactly been perfect between them. First of all, it's no secret that Melania barely spends any time at the White House. Secondly, when he tried to hold her hand in public, she tried to slap it away like a Slovenian Dikembe Mutombo. You remember that? <laughs> and who knows? It may have even created some tension between them when Trump allegedly banged a porn star and paid her to be quiet and then the whole country found out about it. <laughs> anyway, you know, normal relationship issues. And I know it sounds crazy. Donald Trump wants to deport his wife? But if you look at all of Trump's immigration policies, right? A lot of people think that he just hates immigrants, but when you put them all together, you start to notice a pattern. All of his policies seem to be aimed at his wife. <laughs> For example, one of the immigration issues Trump complains about most is people who come to the United States the wrong way and work in the country illegally. And everyone always assumes that because he's racist, he's talking about Mexicans. But I don't think it's a coincidence that that same complaint could apply to his very own wife. New questions about Melania Trump's immigration status when she first came to the U.S. The Associated Press reporting she didn't have the proper visa for her modeling work. I came here on visa 
I flew to Slovenia every few months to stamp it and came back. Trump insists she got her visa stamped every few months. If that's accurate, it would mean she had a type of visa, possibly a tourist visa, that needs to be updated periodically. But that type of visa does not allow working in the United States. When this controversy first bubbled up, the Trump campaign promised that Melania would have a press conference to clear it all up. That press conference never happened. That's right. Melania's staff promised that she would hold a press conference to clear up her questionable immigration history, and then it never happened. Now, to be fair, it's only been three years since that promise was made, okay? <laughs> and you guys don't even know how hard it is to throw together a press conference in three years. Like, you, you have to get a podium, and, and like, that's pretty much it. But still, <laughs> but still, it seems a little convenient that Trump would bring up the whole legal work thing when he knows his own wife has a shady visa history. And clearly when that failed, Donald tried to switch things up because then he started complaining about how lots of foreigners are taking advantage of America's immigration system by claiming that they were special when in fact they were not. Now again, people assume Trump was talking about Indian computer programmers in Silicon Valley. But if you follow the clues, you realize this guy was actually slamming his wife. The Washington Post reports that questions linger about how Melania Trump scored the so-called Einstein visa to enter the United States when she was a model. In 2001, she was granted a green card in the elite EB1 program. It's designed for academic researchers or people in other fields, such as Olympic athletes and Oscar-winning actors. Granted to people who demonstrate sustained national and international acclaim, and it's usually in the fields of arts, business, or in academic research. Now, only 3,376 EB1 green cards were issued that year. Five went to people from Slovenia. Yeah, that's right. Melania got a green card through the Einstein visa program which seems strange. Although I guess if you spend enough time standing next to Donald, anyone starts to look like Einstein. <laughs> well, almost anyone. And you know, you know, guys, the more you look at it, the more it seems like Donald Trump is trying to deport his wife. Because who can forget one of his biggest anti-immigration crusades? Chain migration. The president wants to reform the visa lottery system and end so-called chain migration. Then you have chain migration. <laughs> chain migration. Chain migration, you come in and you bring your whole damn family. A guy comes in and then you have to bring his aunt, his uncle, his father, his grandfather, his grandparents. A single immigrant can bring in virtually unlimited numbers of distant relatives. Yes, one of the things Donald Trump hates most about America's immigration policy is that immigrants' families can come live with them in the U.S. Now, even though Donald Trump says that, I want my family back home watching the show to know that this is not true, okay? <laughs> you cannot bring unlimited relatives to America. Do you guys hear me? In fact, the law even says that you guys can't crash on my couch and I'm actually not even in town that weekend. That's what the law says, <laughs> Uncle Mang Mang. Now it was really slick for Trump to make it seem like this thing was about uncles and aunts and cousins, but clearly there was someone that he was actually aiming at all along. 
President Trump's in-laws slipping in and out of a Manhattan federal building where they took the oath of U.S. citizenship. Sources tell ABC News that First Lady Melania Trump sponsored her Slovenian-born parents, Victor and Amalia Nobs, taking advantage of the same policy President Trump has denigrated as chain migration and vowed to end. That's right. Melania Trump helped her parents chain migrate to the U.S. So that's what Donald Trump was trying to stop. He was trying to to turn his in-laws into outlaws. Yeah, (laughs) which is super hardcore. And as if this wasn't enough evidence that Donald Trump is trying to deport his wife, then how do you explain the new policy his administration announced this week, huh? They came out saying that immigrants who receive assistance from the government may not be allowed to stay in the United States. Well, guess who lives in a free house provided by the United States? (laughs) Melania mother Trump! I see what you're doing, Donald. I see what you're doing, and I'm not gonna let it happen. In fact, we're not gonna let this thing happen. (laughs) Daily Show fans, join me now. Help me get the word out by tweeting hashtag don't deport Melania. (laughs) Because if this great immigrant is forced to leave this country, then the United States can never truly be best. We'll be right back. is the mayor of New York City and a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. Please welcome Mayor Bill de Blasio. <laughs> welcome to The Daily Show. This is a place to be. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is, isn't it? Yeah. These people love New York City. Do you love New York City? I'm so glad that you've been able to stop by uh, in New York City. I feel like you're on the campaign trail all the time now. Is that like a shift for you in, in, in what you do? You, you're the mayor. Yeah. You're normally here every single day just doing mayor, mayor things. Yeah. And then now you're out <laughs> in the country campaigning to be the president of the United States. Has that changed your life? I still do a lot of mayor, mayor things. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God. Because it, it's a job that's literally 24-7. You can never, ever stop thinking about it. Right. It's 8.6 million people. It's the biggest city in the country. It's the most diverse place on earth. Right. I run the biggest police force in the country. I run the biggest school system in the country. So I got to focus on it. But I also know a lot of what we have to make better here in New York and all over the country can only be fixed in Washington. That's the truth. That's interesting. That's the truth. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. A lot of people say being a mayor is probably the hardest job in American politics because whatever you do has an immediate repercussion. Everything that goes wrong is blamed at, you know, you're blamed directly. Um, Whereas in in Washington and in politics, it feels like there's a lot more of a buffer that goes on. Why would you subject yourself to both scrutinies at the same time? (laughs) Why would you want to be a mayor and run for president at the same time? Are you just a sucker for punishment? What is that? There's a place in this world for masochism. There really is. (laughs) Uh, No, look, I literally, for six years, I've been running this place. Right. And it, I love New York so deeply. And I think New York actually, right now, it's a place where people are getting along pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a place for everyone, right? Doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. 
And we've done things here that I think would really benefit the country. And part of what's motivated me to run for president is I was able to do things that change people's lives. Pre-K for every child for free. Let's just think about that for a moment. Everyone in America, right. That, it doesn't matter if you're red state, blue state. We were able to do that here in my first two years as mayor. And, and I've talked to families, Trevor, whose lives are just totally changed. Their kids are getting an opportunity that many of them never dreamed of, and they certainly couldn't afford. And let's face it, in America, education has been divvied up by economic reality, not according to what your skills are, what your possibility is. And that's not actually consistent with our values. Imagine a country where every child got to start at the same starting line and could reach their God-given potential. We're doing that here, and it gives me confidence we could do it in the whole country. You, you have been aggressive in rolling out many liberal policies, or progressive ideas, rather, in, in New York City. Yeah. You know, so as you said, pre-K, um, you also pushed for a $15 minimum wage. Yes. These are ideas that you believe you can scale out to the rest of the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. Do you think you can roll those out, considering how different the budgets are of a country versus a city? Yeah, because, look, uh, $15 minimum wage is a great example. When it first was being floated as an idea, I supported it early on, I believed in it, but you had a huge amount of opposition, particularly in the business community. But by the way, not just Republicans, even Democrats were saying, oh wait, this is going too far. But think about what $15 means. If you're making $15 in New York and all over the country, it's not enough to take care of a family on ultimately. Minimum wage is supposed to represent an idea that you can live on it. That's a long time ago, a minimum wage you could live on. You can't live on this minimum wage today. And so when I say $15 an hour, uh, I know it could work because all those doubting Thomases said, oh, the economy's gonna be ruined, we're gonna lose jobs, businesses will suffer. You know what happened? We actually ended up adding jobs. We have the strongest economy we've ever had. Half a million new jobs since I became mayor. So. Well, let's then talk about some of the broader issues that you would face as a president. Yeah. You know, in many ways, I feel like a, a city is a microcosm of America, yeah. especially a big city. Yes. New York is no different. You know, you, you have issues surrounding education. You have issues in and around inequality. Um, if, if, we, if you look at those, as much as New York has added all of these new jobs, as much as New York has become a safer place to live, yes. you cannot deny that there is a homelessness problem oh, in yeah. the city. Yes. You also cannot deny that people are struggling just to live in New York yes. unless they earn a lot of money. People are getting pushed out of the city, whether it's foreign investors who don't live here or it's just gentrification. How do you roll, how do you fix these problems in New York in a way that then can be fixed in the rest of America? So look, it's really important to be honest about the things that work and the things we're still trying to figure out, right? You mentioned safety. This city today is the safest big city in America. And I'm very proud of that fact. And we've helped bring police and community together in that process. And we found out that the things that we were told about how you stay safe, like stop and frisk, which President Trump loves to talk about as a great solution, it turned out stop and frisk was separating communities from police. It was creating tension. It was creating division. Right. We got rid of it. We got safer. Crime has gone down six years in a row in New York City. That is a really good thing. But... You're right, there are these problems like homelessness, and we're seeing it all over this country. And, and Trevor, it is directly related to the fact that we're seeing gentrification in cities, that the price of housing is going up. There's now an affordable housing crisis in this country. What I can at least tell you in New York is we've created some solutions. We got a long way to go, but I'll give you an example. Right now in this city, when developers want to build 
major new buildings and they have to come to the city and get permission. Mm -hmm. We require them to build affordable housing as part of that. We say you have to build 20%, 25%, 30% of your apartments have to be affordable for working people. Right. That is now law in New York City. We could do that in this whole country. We could do that everywhere. So you could, you could say that, you know, to, to developers before you give them permits, et cetera. You, 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 you obviously are expressing an idea that you have a certain amount of power when you're in a government position. Yeah. With regards to the police, that's one position where you, you have direct power. Mm-hmm. And you can't deny New York City has been divided in and around the case of Eric Garner. Yes. You know, that, that, that was a case that really broke people's hearts because... We saw the video. We saw, we we saw, saw the him video. die. Yes, we, we saw, saw the video. We didn't see him die. We saw him get killed. Right. And you saw him get killed by a police officer who, combined with a group of people, really seemed to be overreacting to somebody selling cigarettes. Now, since then, the federal government took on the case. After five years, nothing happened. But people are looking at you as the mayor and yeah. saying, why are you not calling for this policeman to be fired? Because even according to the training, yeah. it does not seem like he acted appropriately. So Trevor, I, I understand that 100%. And I try and be really honest with people. It's because of a legal reality, and I want to explain it to you. But the most important thing to say first is there has to be justice in this case. The, the places we turn to for justice for generations, the United States Department of Justice, you know, the district attorneys, the places where you thought there would be charges, there would be a trial, everything would be aired. Right. That didn't happen here. In a way, honestly, I can't think of any other example as bad as this where there was no actual trial. The first trial that ever happened in this case happened in the NYPD's own internal process. There was a full trial, a public trial. A judge decided, an NYPD judge said, no, that was wrong, and this officer must be terminated. So as painful as it has been, awful for the Garner family, unacceptable, remember that where there finally was a justice system working, it was actually within the police department. And that says that something is changing unto itself. The law says I am not supposed to interfere in that process. And I believe by not interfering in that process, we will get to an outcome. I know it will be this month. I believe it will be fair, it will be impartial, and then it will stick And this chapter, this extraordinarily painful chapter, will be over once and for all. That's what I'm doing. I'm following the law, but I'm also ensuring that we have a police department that actually created that fair and impartial process. Let's talk about the police departments. You know, there's a... You know, there's... there's, You know, there's often a misconception, in my opinion, that that police are not human beings. They are. I I also believe very much in the ethos that hurt people hurt people. And a lot of police in police departments are strained... Uh, underpaid, overwhelmed, forced to make money by ticketing people or arresting groups. And you see that strain start to filter through. Not just in New York, all over the United States. But New York, we're reading numbers where eight policemen have committed suicide in one year. Eight, killing themselves. It's horrible. That tells you that something's going wrong. It tells you that these human beings are dealing with the problem. Now, if these human beings are dealing with it, they're also dealing with other human beings who they then transmit their problems to. What do you think can be done about reforming America's police system? Yeah. How do you get better people to become police? How do you enable police to become better at doing their jobs? First of all, I think there's a lot of very good people, many, many very good people who choose to be police officers because they actually have that impulse to protect others. Right. And what we found in this city is 
We had to help people be the best they could be by giving them a lot more training. For example, that horrible reality around Eric Garner was based on a philosophy that used to be very, very aggressive. Policing was supposed to be aggressive right. and interventionist. And what we taught ever since that horrible tragedy, literally we retrained 36,000 officers. We said, no, de-escalate. Don't let a small situation get worse. De-escalate, calm things down, bring in other officers. Let's try and get a different situation. Mm-hmm. Or if someone has, for example, a mental health challenge, let's wait till we can get some mental health provider to come over and help. Also implicit bias training. Every police force in America, and this should be a federal mandate with federal support, should have de-escalation training and implicit bias training. We're all humans, we all have bias, we're brought up with it. All of us have to weed it out, particularly those who protect us and carry weapons. Those things, body cameras also, every police force in America should have body cameras. These are the things that start to change the culture profoundly. So I'm very hopeful that as we move out of this bad past, and it's just plain bad, it's filled with division and racism and pain, that we can actually bring out the very best in those who serve us. And that means then they get connected to the people they serve in a different way. Right. When we got rid of Stop and Frisk, we replaced it with neighborhood policing. And we said, you actually go to a neighborhood and you get to know people, first name basis, build relationships. Right. And what officers told me was people started to confide in them, would share information with them, would thank them. I mean, Trevor, think about that. If you want to talk about stress and the challenges of being a police officer, which are intense, actually getting overt appreciation, getting a warm embrace from people, it really helps. And and we're finding that's happening more and more. But I got to tell you one more thing. These suicides are extraordinarily painful. And today I sent a message out to the members of the NYPD that was very personal. And I tried to help them understand from my own experience. So my dad was in the U.S. Army. He volunteered after Pearl Harbor. He served in the Pacific, in battle after battle, and ultimately the Battle of Okinawa, which was literally one of the worst battles in human history. And it was toward the end of the battle, a grenade goes off, he loses half his leg, and he survives. And he comes back, and he's dealing with the physical challenges. And by the time I was born, I saw a guy who was big and strong and dealing with the fact he only had half a leg, but was starting to feel the psychological, emotional effects as I was a young child, he fell into alcoholism, depression, and when I was 18 years old, he took his own life. And this is, if you met this guy, my dad, he was strong, he was smart, he had lived through that entire war. He volunteered literally at the very beginning of the war, went to the final battle of the war. He was not killed in that battle, but that war ultimately killed him. And I sent that message to the men and women of the NYPD to say, no matter how much you're, you're good people, you're strong, you're trying to do a job, you're trying to protect other people, but you could still be dealing with a challenge just like my dad was. The difference is my dad, when people tried to offer him help, he didn't know how to accept it. He literally didn't know how. He thought it would suggest some weakness or that he could handle it himself, and you could tell he couldn't handle it, but he would kind of push it away, push it away. My message to our officers is if, if, if you yourself are having a challenge or someone you care about in your precinct, there's nothing wrong with accepting help. Right. And we're gonna make sure that help comes from fellow NYPD officers, people they can talk to, their peers. Uh, we're trying to do so much to make mental health services available and destigmatize the mental health challenge, which my wife, Charlene, has focused on these last six years. Take away this awful stigma that afflicts us in America, even though mental health challenges affect one in five adult Americans. Somehow we make it a character flaw in our minds, in our culture. It's not. It's not a sign of weakness. It's right. something that's in us. 
So I hope that that message, I hope all the other things we're doing to try and reach our officers will help people to come forward and get help for themselves and, and to save themselves and to save their families who will miss them. I, I hope so too. It's a powerful message. The, um, the presidential race has been an interesting one. Um, that was an understatement, sir. <laughs> You're very subtle this evening. I, uh, <laughs> trying to be a uh, suave. Um, You're about to say we need more candidates. No, no, no. I, uh, I, just, <laughs> I just started acting on CSI, so I. Uh, That's yeah. right. <laughs> the, uh, the presidential race has been an interesting one. You have two dozen candidates. You have many people on that stage who get barely three minutes to speak on any given night. I truly am fascinated by somebody like you who has been on that stage, mm -hmm. who has polling numbers as low as yours, but, but policies... No, 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 but really, but policies... You meant it in a good way. No, no, no. <laughs> but policies that are responded to as well as yours when you're on the stage, because yeah. when you do speak, the people do respond to you, yeah. right? Do you genuinely think that you have an opportunity to win the race to become the Democratic candidate, or are you there to try and shape how the party has a conversation going forward? Trevor, I never run for anything unless I believe there's a way to win. When I ran for mayor in New York City, I assure you I was an underdog. I assure you a lot of people said there's no way in hell I had a chance. Mm -hmm. And I saw things turn around suddenly weeks before the election. We've seen that over and over. I, I mean, I'd like to tell you, I don't know if you heard about this, Donald Trump is president of the United States. I mean... <laughs> what? No, no. Do you know how few people thought that was possible? <laughs> I mean, it's shocking. What's happened in American politics today is the only thing that we can predict is the unpredictable. So as someone who's been an underdog time and time again, I don't get uh, overwhelmed by being an underdog. I think people are listening and they're looking for something still. I think there's still a, just a huge percentage of the electorate that have not made up their mind ultimately I believe in my heart that Democrats want to nominate a progressive. Right. I believe they want to take on all the inequalities in this country. So then let me ask you this about yeah. that. Just go straight to the core, but why do you think you're different from all 24 other people up there? It's, what makes you different? No, it's, this is the question you always have to answer. Other than being run. 10 feet tall, what makes yeah. you different? First of all, now, the tall candidate has won, I think, every one but three of the presidential elections in American history. Okay, okay. Okay. So you know what you should do? You know what you should do then at one of the debates when yeah. they say your opening remarks, yeah. just bring a hoop out and dunk. Yes. And just be like... I just... And just, that's it. That's my no remark. No further statements. That's no further statements. That's it. So the tall candidate almost always wins. Okay, okay. And I'm taller than Donald Trump. <laughs> okay, okay. Do the math. This is interesting. Do the math. Okay. Okay. But, no, I came to this simple conclusion. Um, I've run the biggest city in this country and been able to make real changes. Put, literally put money back in the hands of working people. That's what Pre-K for All for Free did. That's what the $15 minimum wage did. The affordable housing programs, giving people basics. We're doing two things right now. We're giving for everyone who doesn't have health insurance, which is hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers, we're just guaranteeing them health care at this point. We're saying we're going to give you a health care card. Come to one of our public hospitals and clinics. We're going to give you a primary care doctor. So you can get healthcare when you need it. And pay whatever you can pay. So, and, and one other I have to say, because I think people need to hear about it, we're the only country in the world, in the, only industrialized, I should say, country in the world, that does not guarantee hardworking people. People work every week of the year, have no guarantee of any vacation, any time off by law. 
In New York City, we're going to pass a bill guaranteeing two weeks paid vacation for every working person. Wow. And the whole country needs that. So the things we're talking about, I, I, it's as simple as this. I respect these other candidates very much. Some I feel very close to personally, politically. But I've actually done these things. I've had to run the biggest city in the country. I've had to produce these changes for working people. I've had to take on very powerful interests. I've taken on the real estate community here. I've taken on the landlords in New York City. I've taken on all those folks who said, oh no, we have to keep stop and frisk. Or we you know, have crime and chaos. And I stared them down. I said, no, we're getting rid of it. And I would prove to them we would get safer. And we did. So I've actually had to lead in a very tough dynamic and make real progressive change for real people. I think that's what folks are ultimately looking for. They, they appreciate folks who can give a good speech or have a good policy paper, but ultimately this is about people's lives, their families. And I'm able to say, hey, for six years I did it in what's arguably the toughest place to do it. This is considered often the second toughest job in America. Mm -hmm. If you can do it, if you can get big things done for people, well, of course that's the kind of qualification necessary to be president of this country. And I believe people are looking, they're searching for the candidate that they think will give them real change in their lives. Right. And, of course, what Democrats want, what unifies us all. Who can take on Donald Trump? Look, I've watched this guy for decades. There is no trick he has I haven't seen. Uh, he is the ultimate con man. He's literally, it's just a classic bait and switch con man. To deal with him, you have to be aggressive. You have to be assertive. So I say to people wherever I go, I say, I apologize as a New Yorker that you ever had to meet Donald Trump. <laughs> I want to just get that formal apology. And I said, this New Yorker is ready to get rid of him for you. So, so that's your pitch. That's my pitch. Thank ready. you so much for coming to the show. You, Appreciate having you here. Mayor Bill de Blasio, everybody. We'll be right back. My guest is the host of the Facebook Watch series Red Table Talk and an actor who can be seen in the new movie Angel Has Fallen. Please welcome Jada Pinkett Smith. back to the show. Thank you. So good to have you here. Um, what's really exciting to me is last time you were here, it's because you were playing a villain in Gotham. <laughs> yeah. And then now in this new movie, you're playing the hero, the good guy. What do you prefer more? You know, I kind of like both. Yeah? Yeah, it just depends on how the role is written. But it's, it's fun playing a good guy and it's fun playing a bad guy. Oh, I like, I like that. You get to switch between yeah, both of them. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what's lovely about, you know, acting. Yes. You know, being able to play in your shadow world. Right. And play in your angel world. Oh, I like that. Your yeah. shadow world and your angel world. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like that a lot. I like yeah. that a lot. This movie is, is, is a movie about um, you're playing a... Um, um, an agent yes. who is basically investigating Gerard Butler's character. And we've seen him in previous movies where he's a Secret Service agent, right? Yes. And, and so he's been accused of an assassination attempt. Trying to assassinate the president of the United States, which is Morgan Freeman. Right. Yeah. When, you, when you're playing this character in this movie, I mean, Gerard Butler is like, I mean, he's like Gerard Butler, you know? Yeah. And then you come in as Jada Pinkett, and what's crazy is on screen, you seem five feet taller than you actually, like you, 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 
<laughs> no, really, because you're a small part in the yes. every scene is just like you're just like, wow, she's like gonna kick everybody's ass. <laughs> is is that like a zone that you get into where you go, I'm in kick ass mode now, I'm not in like friendly Jada mode? Definitely. Definitely. And I, I had a lot of practice growing up in Baltimore. <laughs> I actually wondered if that's a technique that you still employ today with your family. Because I see videos of you and the kids and Will, and then sometimes Will will do his Instagram videos, and then it feels like you turn into that FBI agent and you're like, put the phone down, Will. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Let me ask you what that's been like. Your family, you know, for a long time was very much like a, an enigma. Yeah. You know, it was the, the Smith family. We saw you at a, a movie premiere and, and, and that was it. And now with Instagram and social media, it feels like we know you so intimately. Yeah. You've shared so much. You, you know, you've cried with us. You, you've laughed with us. Has that been a big shift in, in how you live your life? It, it's been a huge shift. I mean, you know, uh, Will becoming a cameraman and everything. Right. And then... <laughs> Posting, but yeah, it became a huge shift. And I think that we actually got a lot more comfortable with it as our kids got older. Interesting. Yeah, as they got older and just watching how they were able to um, handle being in the public eye in a certain manner. Right, right. And as they matured, we just figured we could open up our space a little more because they could have it. With Red Table Talk, you've created a show that has become just wildly, wildly popular. And yeah, I mean, there's fans in the audience right now. What what I've loved about the show is I think the thing many people love about it is it's so intimate and yet it connects to so many different people's stories. Yeah. It's family, it's society's issues, it talks about issues that are deep. I mean, there was one issue where you learned that Willow used to cut herself. Yes. But I feel like you learned that on the show. I did. I did. That must have been a gut punch. Why why did you leave that in? I mean, that's such a vulnerable moment. Willow wanted me to. Wow. I asked her, I said, are you sure that, you know, you want to talk about this on this platform? And she said she thought it was really important. And she was right, because even young people who were in our family that were going through it... Right. ...felt like they could now come out and tell us because Willow had talked about it. And there were so many young people that reached out and felt like they could talk about it now because Willow had. And so that was a really proud moment for me because as a parent... Because a lot of people also looked at it like you were so cool about it. And the reason why... And and inside, I'm like, so many feelings are happening. I want to cry. I want to scream. I'm Mm -hmm. like, how could I not Mm -hmm. know? But... In that moment, I had to remove that parent ego, right? And really look at my daughter and realize, wow, it was a teachable moment for me in understanding that we can't be there for our children, sometimes in their darkest hours, but our love is always there. And part of that is what pulls them out. When you're creating the show, it's interesting that you bring up the word ego. Yeah. Because one of the things that I've really loved is how it feels like there isn't an ego in and around the show. Yeah. You know, and and that's been a big shift even in the the idea of what celebrity means. You know, a lot of people want to see a perfect image. Your marriage has been held up for many people as as an icon for, you know, not just black couples, but just couples in general. You go look at these people, they're having an amazing time, they're a couple. But you've exposed how hard it is to be in a relationship how many challenges you face together, how you've overcome those challenges together. Breaking the facade of perfection. Yes. 
seems like a very deliberate choice that you've made. It was a very deliberate choice for Will and I both. We actually felt like we were being deeply irresponsible in regards to um, trying to uphold this image of perfection because it was so deeply false. Wow. And we felt like we had so much more to offer people in expressing and talking about our imperfections and how, how hard it is right. <laughs> to right. be in a relationship, right? Because we don't want people to look to us to kind of aspire for a perfect relationship. There's no such thing. The perfection is within the imperfections. And so we really wanted to dissolve that. Yeah. I I mean, I was a fan, I am a fan, and I think everyone has become an even bigger fan. Congratulations on the new movie. Congratulations on the Emmy. Emmy. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Angel Has Fallen opens in theaters August 23rd, and you can catch new episodes of Red Table Talk in September on Facebook Watch. Jada Pinkett Smith, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.